Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. Um, so as you can tell, I'm not Pastor Mark. <laughs> um, my name is Chase Ellenberg. Um, I, was in a, uh, I was in a store earlier. I, I ventured out, took two of my girls to Sam's Club today. And uh, it can be an adventure. And I, I got to thinking that, you know, it might be June. It might be June because I'm looking around and I see some fellow teachers and they're smiling. They're just walking around smiling. I see parents and they are frowning. And, and there's, there's sweat pouring down. And so it's just kind of two different worlds. Um, it's 95 degrees outside in the morning. So it might be June. It might be June. Um, but again, my name's Chase. Most of you guys know me. This is the Wednesday night crew, right? Um, in the summertime, um, something that I, that, that I love that I get, I get to come and, and share with you, Pastor Mark tries to bring in some, some different voices in the summertime and share what God is doing in their life. So if it's okay with you guys, I got a word for us tonight, okay? We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that sounds familiar, right? If you've been coming at all on, on Wednesday nights, uh, Pastor Mark has been going over a, a series where he's been going over spiritual gifts. He's been classifying them, breaking them down for us to, to understand. And so we're going to start with that and, and piggyback off of it a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to start in, in verse 1. Right here, I'm going to read through verse 6 out of the New Living Translation. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 6, just to set a foundation for us tonight. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us. So again, we want to, again, I'm just going to build a foundation off of what Pastor Mark has already done. This Corinthian church was very interested in the spiritual gifts. They, they, they were inquired about it. They, they practiced and they exercised them. And now Paul wants to bring some clarity. Verse 2, you know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in, the worship, in worshiping speechless idols. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. So this is the foundation. This is the spiritual gift chapter, 1 Corinthians 12. And then we've also gone over on past Wednesdays, 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul again, outlays these spiritual gifts that are available to us. And there are differing gifts coming from one Lord, coming from one spirit, right? I want to first off say, uh, and I'll speak from, from Pastor Mark's heart here, is the purpose of the Wednesday nights of, of, of classifying these is not to stick a label on spiritual gifts, it's not to, to so that we can sit in a service with a little notebook and check up, yep, there's a gift of wisdom, or yep, there's a gift of prophecy. That's not the purpose of these. We never, ever want to categorize the Holy Spirit. We never, ever want to put him in a box with a check, check mark and a label. But really, classification 
give it, 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 it repels misunderstanding. That's what Paul's saying here is right there in the end of verse one, I don't want you to misunderstand this. So he's bringing it to alleviate misunderstanding and misuse because that was what the Corinthian church was dealing with. They had no problem displaying gifts, but they were misusing these gifts. So that's the whole point of classifying. And it really brings about the key difference, as Pastor Marcus said, between religion and kingdom. Religion loves to classify things. Religion loves to label certain days and certain practices. Think about the Pharisees when they would come to Jesus and say, oh, your disciples are doing this on this day, or they're having this practice on the Sabbath day. They love to label things. But kingdom, in a lot of ways, resists labels. It resists those categorizing boxes. And another key difference we can see here between kingdom and religion is that religion is a one-sided relationship. It creates a one-sided relation between the supernatural and the natural. Um, I spent, after I graduated from college, I spent some time in Thailand teaching over there. I was there for about six months. And um, if you know anything about Southeast Asia, that region um, is 95% Buddhist. So everywhere you go, there's they're called wats or temples that, that are for Buddha. And, and, I, and I would go, I would have friends, and they would want to go and, and dedicate something at the temple. But it was always one-sided. They would go and lay this before the, 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 the idol, the, before Buddha. They would lay this down or that down or whatever. But it always had break the question in my mind is, well, what, is, what does Buddha do for me? <laughs> okay? Religion creates a one-sided relationship. Kingdom is a two-way street. Kingdom is us interacting with God and what he brings to us as well, okay? So that's kind of the foundation. We need to establish that. Over, um, I'm not going to read 1 Corinthians 14, but we see that that's one of the points of spiritual gifts, is that God is giving these things to his people, the church, that he is doing his part and now it's our responsibility to enact these gifts, to do our part, okay? So with the foundation laid, we're actually going to go back to the Old Testament because with this new knowledge of spiritual gifts, I do want to issue a caution tonight or a warning. That sounds a little too, a little too fancy, a little too official, but kind of an, a warning. If you are taking notes, the title of this message is... Love the honey, hate the bees. Love the honey, hate the bees. And we're going to see an example of this in Judges. We're going to go all the way back to Judges chapter 13. Because what we're going to see here is actually an example of the Corinthian church in a lot of ways in the Old Testament. In the book of Judges. Now, Judges 13, what we see here <clears throat> is at this point, the kingdom of Israel has made it. They've made it to the promised land. I mean, they've gone on that long vacation trip, you know, that never seems to end, and the kids are screaming in the back of the car, and you're thinking, you're, you're, this is when you're really praying in the spirit, and, you're, and you know what you're praying, please let us get there, please no more red lights, please no accidents, we just need to get there. They've made it, they've made it to the promised land, Okay. Moses has died. 
Joshua has died. God did his part. Remember that kingdom being a two-side two street, two-way two relationship? God did his part. God did what he said he was going to do. He got them to the land of Canaan. Israel did not do their part. They did not defeat all of the people living there. And so the judges have to arise because they let the enemies stay. And we see here different judges having to come about and save the kingdom, save Israel over and over and over again. And the one we're going to focus on tonight is Samson. So let's start in Judges 13. We're going to read the first five verses. Judges 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed them for 40 years. In those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah. His wife was unable to become pregnant, and they had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, Even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. So be careful. Everybody say, be careful. I told you we're we're stepping into more of a warning tonight. Be careful. So be careful, the angel of the Lord says. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. So here we see a situation with a man named Manoah and his wife. They're unable to conceive. And if you've read the Bible for any length, this is really a trend that we'll see uh, barrenness in, in a family, in a marriage, the inability to have children. And God will come along many times through a divine messenger and say, I'm going to bring life where there is none. We've seen it with Hannah and Samuel. We see it with um, Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And here we see it with Manoah and his wife who will have Samson. But that's God doing his part. That's God bringing life where there is none. But remember the warning. The warning was, be careful. You've got your side as well. You've got your responsibility, which for Manoah and his wife and the child was to fulfill that Nazarite vow. Okay? So, what is the Nazarite vow? Let's go find out. I like to, I mean, you, you guys that know me know I like to build a foundation. I like to bring in the, all the background info. So let's go to the book of Numbers. We are going to be flipping a little bit tonight. Numbers chapter 6 is going to tell us this Nazarite vow. That this angel came and said, okay, you're going to have a son. He needs to take this vow because he's going to rescue Israel if he does this. And here's the requirements of the Nazarite vow. Numbers chapter 6, we'll read the first eight verses. Here is what the vow contains. Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If any of the people, either man or women, take the special vow of a Nazarite, setting themselves apart to the Lord in a special way, here's what they must do. They must not... Or they must give up wine and other alcoholic drinks. 
They must not use vinegar made from wine or from other alcoholic drinks. They must not drink fresh grape juice, and they must not eat grapes or raisins. As long as they are bound by the Nazarite vow, they are not allowed to eat or drink anything that comes from a grape vine. Everybody say grape vine. You guys are a great group. Not even the grape seeds or skins. They must never cut their hair throughout the time of their vow, for they are holy and set apart to the Lord. Until the time of their vow has been fulfilled, they must let their hair grow long. And they must not go near a dead body during the entire period of their vow to the Lord. Even if the dead person is their own father, mother, brother, or sister, they must not defile themselves. For the hair on their head is the symbol of their separation to God. This requirement applies as long as they are set apart to the Lord. Here with the Nazarite vow, we see three primary tasks, three primary responsibilities that this person, whoever takes this vow, has to complete. So first off, they can't have anything to do with something that grows on a grapevine. Can't drink wine, can't drink grape juice. My kids would suffer because they go through some juice. They can't have raisins, they can't have grapes, nothing. Requirement number two is they can't cut their hair. So for me, it wouldn't be much of a problem, but for them, they, they, can't, they, they, they can't cut their hair, okay? And then the third one would be they can't go near a dead body, so a corpse. They can't have anything to do with that, even if their, their mom or dad or somebody close to them passes, they can't ceremonially bury this person, okay? So that's the requirements, and the whole reason for it is separation. That's what we have to understand about the Nazarite vow, is it creates separation, the grapes and the, the grapevine creates an internal separation, meaning that they are consuming things that are different from the people around them. Their insides have to be different, okay? The, the, the cutting the hair represents an external separation, meaning they need to look different from everybody else. They can't be clean-shaven, and, 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 and they have to be unkempt. They have to be kind of raggedy. Okay, so that's an external way that they're different from other people. And then the, the not dealing with, with corpses deals more with a spiritual separation. You know, when, when we go to pass away is when our body, our natural body transitions to a supernatural state, right? So that's a spiritual separation that they are separating from, from a corpse, from that dead body. So that's what it's all about is separation. The Nazarites were to be separate. And it was very contrasting to the Levitical vow. So the Levitical vow was the priests. So during this, this Old Testament time period, the Levites were the priests. Okay, These were the people that set up the tabernacle, that, that made sacrifices on behalf of the people. And their vow was similar in some ways. They also weren't supposed to, to drink. They were also supposed to say, stay ceremonially, ceremonially clean. Try saying that. Um, but one of the key differences is the Levites inherited their position. It was genetic. You know, they had to be of the tribe of Levi, the 12 tribes, and they had to be of that tribe. The Nazarite vow is self-generated. As, as the, the book of Judges tells us, it can be either a man or a woman. So it speaks to responsibility. So earlier I talked about how kingdom is a two-way street, right? God has his responsibilities, and I have my responsibilities. The Nazarite vow is a symbol for that. 
meaning that this wasn't just given to me as a Levite priest where I, you know, I, I'm born, I become a teenager, and somebody says, okay, you're a priest now because your, your daddy was a priest or your mama was a priest. No, the Nazarite vow was taken on. It was self-generated, meaning that it, they had that responsibility that they took on themselves. And here we see Samson. So returning back to Judges, Samson was to fulfill this vow. And because of it, he was given great power. If we know anything about the Bible, we think of Samson, we think of power. We think of strength, right? You know, there's so many times we can jot down Judges 13.25, Judges 14.6, Judges 15.14, that it says, and the power of the Lord or the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. So he's a symbol for power. However, Samson is a symbol for irresponsibility because he had all the power. But if we know the story, he misused it. Think about Paul's warning to the Corinthian church. Misuse of power. Let's read Samson's story and see if we can draw some connections. Judges 14, I'm going to start in verse 5, because we're going to get just to the meat of his story. Samson grew into an adult. He has the power of the Lord upon him, but again, he misuses it time and time again. Judges, excuse me, Judges 14, starting in 5, verse 5. As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, now if you read before this, he's going to this Timnah village, which is... Outside of Israel, he's going to actually the land of the Philistines because he has seen a Philistine woman that he thinks she looks good, and he's going to marry her, which was already a big no-no. He's supposed to be separated, right? He's supposed to be consecrated, but he's going to the enemy land to find a woman that he just thinks looks good. That's why they're going to Timnah. As Samuel and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson, near the vineyards of Timnah. At that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. He did it as easily as if it were a young goat, but he didn't tell his father or mother about it. When Samson arrived in Timnah, he talked with the woman he was going to marry and was very pleased with her. A couple of things before I keep going there is, first off, Samson is taking a path that leads him right beside the vineyards of Timnah. Notice that in verse 5. The lion attacks him next to the vineyards. That's already somewhere he's not supposed to be as that Nazarite vow. He's not supposed to be around grapes and raisins and wine and juice. Okay? So he's already in territory he's not supposed to be in. Then this lion business happens and he kills the lion. Power of the Lord. Verse 8, later, when he returned to Timnah for the wedding, he turned off the path to look at the carcass of the lion. So he goes back to the vineyards. He, he sees it the first time. You know, fool me once, shame on me. Or fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. He goes back to the vineyards, and now he's looking at the lion. And he found that a swarm of bees had made some honey in the carcass. 
He scooped some of the honey into his hands and ate it along the way. He also gave some to his father and mother, and they ate it. But he didn't tell them he had taken the honey from the carcass of the lion. What we see here is his flippancy with his vow. We see that he goes around the the vineyards twice. And he also touches a dead lion. He's flippant with it. He dips out some honey because he's all about things that look good. Whether it's the woman, whether it's the honey, he disregards his vow for the present moment. Also, uh, it's an implication here that he's going to party at his wedding feast. Now, the Bible's not clear that he goes to drink or he drinks, but I think we can be certain he was around it because he is in foreign territory. There's not going to be a (laughs) ceremonially traditional wedding ceremony. Okay? So he's flippant with his vow. But notice that his power did not go away, because we can make an argument that even though he was around the vineyard, he didn't drink, that we know of. And the Nazarite vow that we read in the book of Numbers did specify he shouldn't be around a human body. So we could even make the argument that the lion was not a total breaking of the vow. But I think we can clearly see he's close to the lion. He's inching closer and closer and seeing how close he can get to breaking his vow. Okay? We see the trend continue in Judges 16. So I'm flipping in my Bible. Judges 16, as we enter into the most famous portion of Samson's story, his interactions with Delilah. Samson and Delilah, right? So the first woman didn't work out, big surprise. And this one, he decides he thinks she looks good as well. She's also a foreigner, so he didn't learn his lesson. And he has now married Delilah, but she's not in his best interest. She doesn't have his best interest in mind. And so she's trying to trick him into revealing where his power comes from. Judges 16.4, we see this. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah, who lived in the valley of Sorek, also detached from Israel, also in foreign territory. Looking ahead to verse 13, Delilah tried several times to trick him and to tell him, tell her where his power came from, and he lied to her. He didn't reveal that his, of his Nazarite vow and his hair. But notice verse 13. Then Delilah said, you've been making fun of me and telling me lies, because he hasn't been telling her the truth of his power, the truth of his vow. Now tell me how you can be tied up securely. Samson replied, if you were to weed the seven braids of my hair, into the fabric on your loom and tighten it with the loom shuttle, I would become as weak as anyone else. Now, notice, this is another lie. If we continue reading, she does trick him. He goes to sleep, and she braids his hair, and it doesn't work. He wakes up, the enemies are there, and he destroys them. But now he's got her messing with his hair. Do we see the trend here? That Samson straddles the line of his vow. He goes beside the vineyards. He may not drink, but he goes beside the vineyards. He touches the lion, or at least scoops the honey out. So he may not actually touch a dead body, but he's around it. And here, she doesn't cut his hair yet, but he gets her to braid it. 
So his trend is to get closer and closer and closer to that line until if we know the story of Samson, he does cross the line. He eventually tells Delilah of his Nazarite vow, and she cuts his hair, and all of his power is taken. He gets captured by the Philistines. His eyes get gouged out. He gets taken as a prisoner. And he doesn't receive power again until later on when the Lord does look with favor upon him at the very end of his life. What we see with Samuel, or Samson, I think I've said Samuel, Samson. What we see with Samson is he had all the power, yet he lacked the work. He lacked the perspiration. He had power but no perspiration to fulfill his power, to fulfill his responsibilities. And to be honest, he is the inversion of potential. We think of potential as keeping something on the inside and never letting it out. Samson is the inverse. He lets it out wildly to the point of reckless misuse. So he is unguarded potential. Now, let's make some connections. As I said earlier, the title of this message is Loving the Honey, Hating the Bees. Samson's life is a picture of this because he loved the honey, literally, but also in the sense of honey being gifts from God. He loved having the power and the strength. He loved being blessed with the gifting of the honey. But he disregarded where the honey came from. He disregarded the bees. He hated the production of the honey. And we can see that the Nazarite vow and Samson himself are a warning. They are an Old Testament symbol of the New Testament church in many ways. The Levitical line of priests is a clear image of the way that God operated in the Old Testament. They are a picture of religion. The Levites were born into their priesthood. They had to do all of these laws and regulations and ordinances and practices and sacrificing rams and lambs and pigeons and turtle doves. It's religious manifesto. It's, it's, it's a religion in, in, in action. The Nazarite vow is a symbol, symbol of kingdom. The Nazarite vow is a symbol of the tearing of the veil because it's clearly said anybody can do that. Man, woman, anybody can take the Nazarite vow. And the kingdom invites anybody. You don't have to be of a certain line. You don't have to have a certain income. You don't have to be a certain color. You don't have to speak a certain language to enter into the kingdom of God. The Nazarite vow is a symbol of invitation that anybody can be a part of this. What's more is the word Nazarite itself is de derived from the root, the Hebrew root word Nazir. Now, Nazir, I can, I can get kind of uh, languagey on you for a second. The word Nazir means set apart. It means consecrated. Like, like I said, the Nazarite vow is to be separated, to be set apart, okay? Now, this word was literally inscribed into the crown that the high priest wore. 
the high priest of the Levitical line wore a crown and inscribed on it was the word Nazir. Now, the Nazarite vow, you don't get a, a crown like that, but it's an inscription through their actions. It's an inscription in their heart that they're going to fulfill their vow. They're, they're, they're not going to drink the wine. They're not going to cut their hair. It's an inscription on their heart and... The Latin equivalent of the word Nazir is ecclesia, the called out, the set apart. Now, I know we may not be language buffs, but ecclesia is the word that Jesus used to describe his church, that we are set apart. We are consecrated when we come into the kingdom of God. The Nazarite vow is an Old Testament symbol of this. It's a symbol. And speaking of crowns, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that we do have a crown. That is, Peter tells us we are a royal priesthood. We are a chosen nation. I loved Pastor Ajay last week said that too often the church has been focused on the cross at the expense of the crown. Church, we have a crown with our name on it, because we are the Nazir, we are the Ecclesia, whatever you want to call us, we are the church of the living God. We are anointed, separated in God's sight. We are a sample of this Nazarite vow. Let's get back to the book of Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. With all of this in mind about Samson, I want to say again that I believe Samson is a warning, that he's a shadow of the Corinthian church and of the danger that churches can experience if they only love the honey and neglect the bees and hate the bees. This warning ensues because a church with power. Do you believe we're a church with power? Do you believe we're a church with power? We are a church with power. Say amen. We are a church with power. God has given us the honey. God has given us spiritual gifts, as Pastor Mark has laid out for us over the past several weeks. Yet we must never become a Samson church. We must never become a church that neglects the work to be done. You know, there, there are churches in, in this world and in this nation that have no power. As Pastor Jay said last week, that, that they'll go the, there will be churches that people go to and God doesn't even show up. Okay? So to be a church with no power is to be a dead church. But to be a church with reckless power is a dangerous church. If we think we're doing and fulfilling and executing gifts on our own, that's what got the Corinthian church in trouble. They had no problem executing spiritual gifts. They had no problem everybody having a tongue, everybody having a word, everybody having a song. But they were reckless. And that church of all the New Testament churches is the one that was rebuked the most. Paul has two lengthy letters to them, and they are not wholesome good letters. 
He's over here telling the church of Philistine how much he loves them and how much he, 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 he praises them. And the, the church in Thessalonica, how he longs to be with them. And he tells the church in Corinth, oh, you foolish Corinthians. He tells the church in Corinth, he rebukes them again and again and again because they were a reckless. They were reckless with their power. <clears throat> and here we see Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So this is his second letter. After he's, he's, he's gone over the spiritual gifts of the first letter, first Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God. So he's returning talking about gifts of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Verse 3. We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us. And no one will find fault with our ministry. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, then put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us, and by our sincere love. We faithfully pre preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We served God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us imposters. We are ignored even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. Oh, dear Corinthian friends, we have spoken honestly with you, and our hearts are open to you. There is no lack of love on our part, but you have withheld your love from us. I am asking you to respond as if you were my own children. Open your hearts to us. These verses, Paul gives a cry to this church to get their vows straight. To get their their relationship with the Lord straight. And we actually see that they could have fulfilled a semblance of that Nazarite vow. If we look at verses 3 through 7 again, Paul talks about enduring troubles and hardships, being beaten, being put in prison, facing angry mobs, enduring sleepless nights, going without food. He's talking about separation. And we can draw from those verses one of those Nazarite vows. I want to talk about the one of not being around the grapevine. Now, the Nazarite vow for that one was don't drink wine, don't drink grape juice, don't eat grapes or raisins. I am not here to say those things. But I am saying to get to the heart of it is that those dealt with consumption what we consume. If you notice, the Corinthian church was consuming the wrong things. 
Paul says that he had to show himself a true minister of God. So us as a church, to fulfill that, let's be careful what we are consuming. Whether it's what social media we're digesting, what news feed we're listening to, what people we're listening to. That first Nazarite vow deals with consumption. Be careful what we as a church are consuming because that can lead to reckless power. If we look at verses 8 through 9, we can see a shadow of that, that second Nazarite vow. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us imposters. We are ignored even though we are well known. That second one deals with the cutting of the hair in the sense that if the first Nazarite vow deals with consumption, don't be careful what you consume, the next one deals with conformation. Be careful what you conform to. Paul clearly says that they were supposed to be different. They were supposed to look different. They were supposed to act different. Even if it means being called an imposter. Because an imposter in the kingdom is a lot better than a genuine person in the real world. Because the world will call us imposters. The world will call us fakes. The church must be visibly set apart from the world. We must look different. Just as the Nazarites looked different, you could tell them from a mile away because of their long hair, we must look different. So if the first one deals with what are we consuming and the next one deals with what are we conforming to, the last bit, second part of verse 9 says, we live close to death, but we are still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. This one deals with the Nazarite vow of the dead bodies. And it deals with connection. If we think about the first one being, what are we consuming? And the next one being, what are we conforming to? The whole dead body Nazarite vow was, be careful what you're connected to. Don't be connected to dead things. If there are things in your life, if there are things in your scope, if there are things in your, in your path or your mind that are dead, separate them. Cut them off. Break them down. Because we are not called to be around dead things. In fact, it's the exact opposite. We are a church with power, right? Right? So when we enter into a situation that has dead things, all of a sudden those dead things become alive. We bring the life. Think about the whole difference between religion and kingdom. Every religion in the world centers around a dead body. But kingdom living, we don't deal with a dead body church. We deal with a risen king, right? (laughs) That's why we have nothing to do with dead bodies because that body is risen. That body broke out of that grave, and he's now a risen king. 
Let's hold on to that so that we don't fall into being a Samson church, a church with all the spiritual gifts being enacted, a church with all the knowledge, but a church that neglects the work behind it. I do not want to be a church that loves honey but hates bees. So the message tonight is pretty simple. Let's be both. (laughs) Let's be both. I, for one, love honey. I really do. <laughs> but I know what goes behind it. I actually, uh, I kind of debated whether, whether mentioning this because it's a little bit gross. But <laughs> I did some research on how honey is actually made. Now, I'm not a science teacher or anything. But apparently what happens is the bees will go out to different flowers, the worker bees, and they'll, they'll get the nectar from the flowers. And they'll take, the, the nectar actually goes to a, a special stomach just for the honey. Bees have two stomachs. I, I can barely handle one. Uh, bees have a honey stomach and then a food stomach. So the nectar goes to the honey stomach where it starts being turned into honey just within them. And then they go back to the colony, and what they actually do is they line up, again, the gross part, and, and they, they spit the honey into each other's mouths. So they form a line, and this bee takes the honey and spits it into this bee's mouth, and this bee takes the honey and spits it into this bee's mouth, and so forth, until it gets to the honeycomb, and then the final bee releases the honey. (laughs) Now you're going to be second-guessing buying honey again, right? (laughs) But that's such a picture of how a church with power And communion operates because we are all dealing with the same thing. We're all speaking the same words. We're all serving the same Lord, as Paul told us, that we've got different spiritual gifts and different bees and different jobs. But at the end of the day, our message is the same, that Christ is risen and the Holy Spirit is here to enact change in the world. So let's form a line. And let's be making some honey together. Amen. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website at anchorfaithbaldosta.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.